0: Hey, everybody. Hey, monkeys. Welcome to Snark Monkey number... Look at this, a benchmark. Number 40. That means nothing. Uh, Except that it's a great one. Michael Lehman, the director, the man who is known for and probably will always be known for, Heathers, the quintessential 80s-era, decade-defining female empowerment-to-the-max movie, from 1988, Winona Ryder uh, helped unleash Christian Slater on the world. It is beloved by many, and for good reason. It's a great, dark, quirk, did I already say quirky? It's a, I'm, I, hope, I don't want to use the word quirky too much, but it just a cult hit for sure. It continues to be brought up as a movie that very much encapsulates the sensibilities and attitudes and even fashions of the 80s. Uh, It set him on his path as a longtime director. Uh, He definitely had his ups and downs in Hollywood, and we covered that because, I think I can safely say, the debacle that is known as Hudson Hawk followed him very closely after the success of Heathers. And how he recovered from that, and how he kind of found his niche in the directing world, specifically in episodic television, and I couldn't even begin to tell you the number of different really exceptional shows that he's had a hand in directing episodes of. We cover that a little bit here in the podcast. But more than anything, Michael's Path is another one of those that takes this circuitous route. We talk about his involvement, even for a short time, in community radio in the Bay Area, how he got involved with uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Zoetrope Studios via, well, you'll have to hear, The Path. Uh, studying philosophy in Germany, for crying out loud, and how he could have easily gone down one direction in the film industry, but decided to, in a way, reboot, if you will, refresh his course and path. And that's where I met up with him at USC Film School. Michael and I have had three important conversations, important to me because they stand out to me, in 35 years. The one was the probably the first one we ever had when we met at USC Film School. The second one came maybe like 12 years later when we had lunch, and he was in the midst of directing, I want to say, The Truth About Cats and Dogs, I believe, which is a movie I, I like very much. And then the third conversation came, what, 20 years later, and is this podcast. <laughs> and yet... We have somehow stayed connected, certainly have conversed via email, especially most recently, because it took me about eight months to get Michael in the booth. He's been so busy working so hard, jumping around the world. But wow, what a great conversation. Uh, What a a thoughtful and interesting take on how he does his work and how he got to where he uh, got, how he got to where he got. Well, see... There's one of the reasons why this podcast just is not taken off, because I don't know how to actually talk. And, and another thing, we we talk a little bit here, especially at the beginning, about my background in radio and how he was fascinated by that. And the fact that I don't make the connection to one of his movies, Airheads. The movie about the rock band who takes over the radio station, Brendan Fraser, and Steve frickin' Buscemi, 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 Um that, uh what's his name, Uh Adam Sandler fellow, that movie, it all takes place at a radio station. How I don't make that connection, what is wrong with me? See, this is why this podcast will never be the success I want it to be, because I'm holding it back. That's too bad, because I don't know how to replace myself. Who else would want to do this? Anyway, forgive me, and I'm trying to forgive myself for not connecting radio to his movie Airheads, which I actually (laughs) really enjoy a lot. Anyway, great conversation. I think you will find his uh, take on things quite interesting, especially in regards to the current so-called golden age of television and how he managed to get into episodic television perhaps with some resistance, at just the right time. Good stuff. This is Michael Lehman, Snark Monkey number 40. For the big four O. 0 That means nothing. Last time you and I had a face-to-face conversation, we had lunch. Um, it was, I can't even remember the year, it was over 10 years ago, uh, I guess. Yeah. And I was just kind of picking your brain because I was trying to get s- s- my own stuff going, and I just wanted to kind of hear where you were, and you were, you have always actually going back to USC when we were in, I think, one class together, maybe. Yeah. You were curious about my radio Experience. You seem to be fascinated by that. Totally fascinated. That. Really? Yeah. Well,
1: I remember you in film school. Uh, I think the class was doing a go-around where everybody was talking about who they were and what they'd done to that point. And we were all very young, so nobody had done that much. And yeah. you, you told the story about growing up in a, if I remember right, Odessa, Texas, right, and getting on the radio and having this early love for radio and finding that you had a talent for it and really enjoying it, but that. As good as that was and as interesting as that was, you were also interested in filmmaking. So I heard this story. I said, wow, that's great. That must be,
0: you know, I don't know. I don't know why. It fascinated me so much. Yeah, you were really interested in that. The fact that you can even remember what I said, which I don't remember what I said. Uh, I don't even remember what the class was. I think it was a screenwriting class. I think Mark it Harris. was Mark Harris' yeah, screenwriting there class. there we go. And, and I had a
1: very distinct memory of that. You know, when I was in high school, I, I also I got on the radio in San Francisco where I grew up mm-hmm. and it had... Um, there was a, a public station called KPOO, K-P-O-O, Poor People's Radio, <laughs> that was some sort never of— never heard of this. Oh, my God. It was this weird, like, hippie uh, communal station. And a friend of mine and I decided that uh, k was run by a blind guy who said that he wanted to open up the radio waves to people who normally wouldn't have any access. And I went to him and I said, what about high school students? We don't have any presence in radio. And uh, my a couple friends of mine and I would like to be able to have shows. And he said that's a great idea. And he put he put me on, and you know my my friend and I got on and we played jazz music or something like that. Uh-huh. And then as the station continued to grow and find slots for more weird people on the fringes, he kept pushing me and my friends way to the to the edge <laughs> until finally I had Sunday morning at three a.m. <laughs> and I remember going in and taking over from a guy named Fuzzy, who was playing entire Huckleberry Hound vinyl
0: discs, (laughs) and I came to their station. Are you... Honestly, this should be... I mean, if it were a movie, if I read this script, I would go, well, this is so not authentic to radio. This would never happen a million uh, oh, years. Oh, no, no, no. You but can't. This is, you're creating. We're, I'm ready to pitch this series with you right now. It, you
1: know, the funny thing is, is the, the station, I believe, still exists. At some point, it became a reggae station. And it's in San Francisco. KPOO. Last time I checked, it was there. All right. I got look that up. But their first uh, office was on a pier out in the middle of the bay, and it was amazing. You sat there and you looked at, you looked out at, at the bay, but they ended up in a in a uh, warehouse south of Market. That was grungy, but Fuzzy turned it into his home, and I remember going in, and this guy, he was clearly high on acid, and his hair was sticking out in 20 different directions, and he was missing most of his teeth. <laughs> but he had a great radio voice. When you heard him on the radio, you thought he was the coolest, weirdest guy in the world. There yeah. is
0: an, There is that era. I mean, what year are you talking? Uh, like 70-something? Yeah, 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 that would have been
1: probably seventy. 70- I'm going to say 72.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that there is that period where, because I still have that moment, because I can remember walking into my first radio station in Odessa, Texas. And in many ways, they, are, they were all the same, no matter what city they were in. There was usually shag carpet on the ceiling and walls, as well as the floor, because that was cheap soundproofing before anybody really thought about acoustic soundproofing. There is a smell that happens when you have a lot of vinyl all kind of jammed and stacked into these shelves, and there's, depending on the kind of the moisture, and it's always things in closed rooms, and there's, you know, no recirculated air, and I get that every once in a while, like walk into a really old record store, for right. instance, and I get that little, that sense memory of, oh, yeah, 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 there is a very particular kind of sense to it, and that's those characters those types of radio guys are very real i mean that was it's just a different world and yeah. i don't know that i've ever seen it portrayed in any other place quite accurately but well the it's very freely painted is yeah. awesome yeah
1: it it was interesting but anyway when i
0: heard you talk in in
1: film school in that class it it wasn't so much that i had had a, an interest in radio but it was that yours seemed so real and focused and official and I thought it was so interesting I grew up in Texas I didn't I, uh, Odessa, Texas sounded very exotic to me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> was, I don't know that that word has ever been used to describe
0: Odessa, Texas but
1: uh, well, I thought of Eisenstein and the Odessa steps ah, I figured there was probably a stairway leading up to your radio station yeah
0: there is literally up. no topography yeah. other than uh, well, it's, it's literally you can see 40 miles straight uh, right. across the desert um, but it's funny you say that because I mean for me it was um it's a, it was a little bit isolated it, it, odessa is literally kind of out in the middle of nowhere and yeah. the there is no big town it's almost halfway between dallas and el paso so if you are, have a creative bent at all you just are looking for any outlet for it and radio just happened to be one that i kind of got attached to and it, it was relatively easy to kind of get a foot in the door um, there's a whole story to that. You don't need to hear. I, it's funny you remember all that because I remember you talking about you had already been working at Zoetrope, if, if I'm if i not mistaken. Yeah. Which for me, for, you know, that era of film school student, because we were all there at the height of Lucas mania, you know, Spielberg craziness. We knew names. We knew names of directors more than I think any other generation may have known names of directors. Milius. Randall right. Kleiser. I mean, these guys had gone through this film school situation, and suddenly that was the new rock and roll. And it was this massive influx of people trying to get into our school when there was very limited capacity for that. So I want to go back to your – you You mentioned you grew up in the Bay Area, which I love, and I, I knew the name Zoetrope simply because of knowing who Coppola was. Tell me about your background. You you did grow up in San Francisco yeah, or out, yeah. outskirts? No, I grew up in San Francisco. Yeah, and went to high
1: school there and uh, was very rooted in San Francisco. And ended up going to college in in New York. I, I was at Columbia, and and spent one semester in art school because I was also interested in painting. I wanted wanted to be a visual artist. And in in art school in New York in 1975, I started making little movies. And somewhere along the way, decided that whatever career choices I might have otherwise made to be an academic or do something, you know, a little more traditional, I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker. And so when I got out of film school, uh, I'm sorry, got out of Columbia and then did a year studying in Germany. I came back to, to San Francisco. I had no money, and I camped out at my parents' house, and applied to U- USC and UCLA. And I figured, yeah, I'll go to film school. That's what that's what people were starting to realize that that was the way to do it. Yeah. So I I applied, and then I needed to wait until until my applications were processed, and I looked for a job. My friends from high school had been the Coppolas' babysitters. They they babysat um, Gio and Roman and Sophia when. Francis went off to the Philippines to do Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now. Yeah, well. So uh, a, a young woman I knew in high school went to the Philippines, and her boyfriend, who was my buddy, a guy named Jerry Ross, went with them. And Jerry worked on Apocalypse. He actually had a small part in it and stayed in the Philippines the whole time and got involved in sound, because the Walter Murch, who was one of the editors oh, yeah. of the movie, is an incredible sound genius. and. Jerry got involved in that department. So I called him and I said, you know, I'm waiting to get into film school, but I, I think I'd like to see if I can get any sort of job in film. What can you – can you help me find out – figure out who to talk to? And he put me in touch with a guy named Jack Fritz who was running the post-production facility of Zoetrope in North Beach. And I hounded the guy. And I hounded him until finally they hired me as a receptionist. And I thought I'll do this until I get – you know, until I find out from film school. I didn't know if I'd get in or not. Right And – uh USC lost my application. They, they told me when I called and said, how come I haven't heard from you guys? They said, oh, well, we, we never got your application. And I called the admissions office and they said, well, we never forwarded your application to the cinema school because you didn't provide a translation of your German transcript." <laughs> I said, you guys, this was this was graduate work in seminars in philosophy in a German university. A it has nothing to do with what I want to do at USC and B it's they don't issue grades. They just have comments and C, you're a university. Go to the German department. <laughs> Somebody
0: should yes, be able to do that. You
1: can figure it out. I gave you the transcript. You didn't tell me I was obligated to translate it, and and D, how do you know that I would even translate it accurately? So they they hemmed and hawed, and they made me translate my transcript
0: transcript for them, which I sent them. Did you tra- did you transcribe it accurately? I did, oh, I, okay. as accurately
1: as I could. It All was right. it, it didn't say a whole lot, and um, and then I never heard from them. Mm-hmm. And I was working as receptionist at Zoetrope. And now I,
0: now paint a picture of Zoetrope at the time because it was relatively new. I believe at that point he had just established it a few years earlier it or?
1: was this would have been 1980 okay so it was it had already been around all right for you know probably 12 years or so oh, I, think, wow. I think francis first moved to san francisco before the god i'm, I'm not positive of the chronology but no, he I think made you're right he, I he think, had
0: established a little kind of enclave for himself it, but it wasn't the big thing at that point because godfather hadn't kicked in and right. then he really had the the money to do it but at the point you're at it's everybody knows it. It's a hot spot for cinema. He's basically creating a new, you know, uh, a production center. Yeah, they're trying to. Yeah, yeah.
1: It was um, so at that point in the Bay Area there was Lucasfilm and there was Zoetrope, and both both these companies were very forward forward thinking. And Francis and Lucas were both doing amazing movies. And and at that point also Francis had just finished. Apocalypse Now. It was out in the theaters. It was doing, you know, really well. And and he bought Hollywood General Studios in L.A., which is now Hollywood Center Studios, I think. Um, hmm. he, he bought this small studio and decided he was going to turn it into an old-fashioned 1930s-style uh, movie studio. Right. And I was working up in San Francisco, and I moved to L.A. to work on One from the Heart, which yeah. was the movie that Francis was doing. The musical
0: he did. The, yeah. The, the, the
1: rather... Notorious musically yeah. he did. <laughs> which which was an amazing production. You know, yeah. like the movie or not, and most people don't, although a lot of people appreciate it's in visual feast, um, that it was a huge deal to be working at Zootrope in LA at the time, as well as in San Francisco, because it was a hub for all sorts of
0: really, really interesting. You know, fringes of Hollywood kind of movie making. Right. Well, also, if I remember correctly at the time, a lot of what came out of One from the Heart were some technological advances that he had envisioned that just hadn't been done before. Something that we take for granted now, like video playback and things like that, that. And the whole thing was shot. On video simultaneously with film. Am yeah. I getting that right? And he edited on video and then did the – I mean, am I remembering that oh, process? Oh, totally.
1: Yeah, I can't believe you even know this. It's it's funny because
0: I talk I'm to a people now. I'm, I'm a, a nerd. Well,
1: <laughs> I, I keep telling people they should investigate and realize that to at least give Francis the accolades and, and acknowledge that he he was – he and Lucas to some degree were the only guys thinking about making a transition to electronic Cinema, which is now that's what it is. Now, movies are made electronically. Mm-hmm. Nobody shoots film anymore. All post production is done with computers non linearly, and the, everything has changed completely. And what Francis was doing in 1980, before the technology existed to really do it the way you know, anything close to the way we do it now, he was saying this is how movies should be made. So he had Video Assist, which he didn't invent video assist i right. think you know jerry lewis had used it before because oh, wow. he wanted to watch his his um, stuff when he was directing himself but he he pushed for uh, a more advanced video assist and he he found he had played around with electronic editing video editing on apocalypse now and he decided that that was the way editing should be done so he was hiring software engineers and video people to try to figure out how to edit films on video and you know, match up your video edits with your film. It was all very complicated and right. And 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 we were experimenting with what at that time was the version the only existing version of high definition video which was a Japanese analog 1125 line video system developed by nhk and sony so
0: and was it the size of a bus i mean it just i envision i envision that shoot having some of the most clunky equipment since the 30s because they were doing parallel uh you know they were shooting on film and video basically at the same time so it was basically two units having to catch the same image the entire time right uh kind, kind of, of. I,
1: there, there were video taps on the film cameras mm-hmm. that that gave a flickered black and white image, which was fed into an Airstream trailer that, that soon became dubbed as the Silverfish, which Francis worked out of. And my job at that point when I moved to L.A. was to be an administrator of the whole electronic operation. Oh, wow. So, you know, I knew nothing about it. I got hired by the guy who was putting together the equipment um, to help him just be an assistant, and I learned very quickly about all this stuff. And so uh, we put a video editing system in in this Airstream trailer, and Francis would kind of remotely direct from there. And people ridiculed him, and they said it was ridiculous. Yeah, because
0: he wasn't on the set. It was very unusual to not be literally right there in the face of the actors, whereas now, again— so many directors huddle around their video village, which can be feet, yards. Yeah away from where the action
1: is. It drives me crazy. And, you know, now if you sit next to the camera, some actors get very upset. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, 20 years ago, if you weren't right next to the camera, the actress would say, where are you? I feel completely abandoned. You're not watching my performance. I'd say, no, I've got a really good monitor there and I can see everything. Even 20 years ago, you could you could see it pretty well. They, they, they had advanced beyond what Francis did in 1980. But now... Uh, Actors will tell me, "You make me nervous. I can I can tell that you're in the room." (laughs) I go, "I don't really want to sit in another room watching you on video. I can watch you on video for the rest of my life." Right, right. You know, and um, it's funny. I mean, but still, there's some actors who like to have you standing by. But Francis took a lot of heat for
0: starting that kind of movie making, which is, of course... you know, People ridiculed him, and that's, I think, why I remember it. I feel like the L.A. Times covered it pretty extensively at the time because he was trying so many things that were unusual from the filmmaking standpoint, and also they basically killed the movie before it was even released because of all these things, all these trappings around it, that it was amusing. I mean, there were so many things about it that were so uh, unconventional that they basically relegated it to a, a, an odd curiosity at best, which in many ways it kind of turned out to be, yeah, but it's, it turned, out but it's be. absolutely worth watching. So so in the process of doing this, I mean, you're shoved into a situation where you're having to handle something that you don't really know that much about, learning a lot, and a lot of it from the technical aspect. How is this informing you as a filmmaker and an artist, just somebody who, who still... Uh, Aspires to be an artist because what was your sensibility before? I mean, if you went to Columbia and you were on the East Coast and you you're studying philosophy in Germany, we just kind of skipped over that. But what was where was your head at as an artist when you were a visual artist? Who were you trying to be? I mean, what was the what was the big influence on you? Well, one of
1: the reasons why I got out of visual arts is that you know I like to paint and I like to draw. And, but I also had a head for philosophy and that sort of thing. And what the artists were doing in New York in the 70s was no longer painting or drawing or sculpting, but instead talking about what is the nature and meaning of art. Really? Yes. And it was a whole conceptual art movement. And, you know... People, art exhibits would be like a chair and then uh, a thing on the walls with a dictionary, printed dictionary definition of chair. And so I looked at this and I said, well, first of all, most of these artists are throwing concepts around that are interesting, but that they don't really understand. So even if I'm going to be in the art world, I'm going to study philosophy. So I kind of get what they're talking about. Right. And and then and there's no point in studying drawing and painting because nobody's doing that anymore. And I got lost. I just said this. I don't know where I fit. I don't want to have anything to do with this. But filmmaking really interested me. And you know, there was all this great German filmmaking going on in the seventies with uh, Wim Wenders, oh, right. and Volker Schlondorf, and all these you know guys that were um, uh, you know making really cool movies. And so I I really got into that and Fassbinder who was hugely influential to me. So when I was in Germany I looked at all that. But you know I was a kid who was raised in the States. I liked Hollywood movies. I was the guy who thought that Star Wars was the end of cinema. <laughs> I hated it.
0: You did. <laughs> yeah. I I was There 19- was always a few of those in there. Right. I was a Which It's interesting student. that you ended up at where you ended up, but we'll we'll get to that. Uh. But
1: but that was partly, you know, Francis his, his orientation was very was a little more esoteric, you know? Right. I mean, he was, he, he was not out of the... He, he did make The Godfather, which in many ways is very much a traditional gangster movie, but a really, really good one. Right. Um, but he was always very forward-thinking. And um, I was more interested in European films growing up because I grew up in San Francisco and it was the 60s and all that. And you stuff. were exposed yeah. to yeah, it. Yeah, a lot was of that part of what... That was, that was what we saw. Yeah. That's what my friends and I talked about. And so... But being a bit of a rebel... I decided I was going to rebel against all that arty stuff, and I thought if I'm going to go study film and be a filmmaker, I want to learn what the traditional filmmaking is and go from there, and change it from the inside. Yeah, or You're... or embrace it. Okay. I didn't necessarily, you know. I guess I always wanted to change it. You know, make it my own.
0: Was... Well, I think the the hubris of any twenty something yeah. is and because I remember all of us were that way, which is. You know, we all went there because, I mean, I know, I didn't even know USC and film school until I started reading about Lucas. And, and that's that was a lot of our brethren around that time. Yeah. But I think we all also went, you know, yeah, but we're going to change the way things are. I mean, you know, it, yeah. it, we're we're going to bring our own sensibility. By the way, when you're 20, 21, 22... I don't know what sort of life experience we're exactly bringing to the table in that, but you, we sure had a lot of conviction about R- it. Radio station in Odessa, Texas. <laughs> that's You it. know, that's the thing. <laughs> Boy, I experienced a lot. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, um, anyway, in the midst of all this, uh, I was learning a lot about filmmaking. And I was working on movies, and Zoetrope was a place to be in L.A. It was incredible. Everybody was there. You know, Jean-Luc Godard had an office on the lot. Vim Venders was there a shooting a movie called Hammett. Um you, you know there was just this incredible amount of filmmaking activity centered around that one place. And so I was very happy to be there but I wasn't making movies. I right. was making somebody else's movies in a technical capacity and I just Which felt you
0: way. never had a, a, an inclination no, to No, no, I wasn't. I mean I was
1: interested in it but it wasn't where my heart was. So yeah. um I got a letter from USC <laughs> saying dear Mr. Lehman we we found your application. <laughs> It was from the cinema school. We found your application. Uh, You applied three years ago, but your application is now in order and up for consideration. Do you still want to be considered? (laughs) (laughs) And I wrote them a note saying, yeah, it's funny, you know, and while I was waiting for you guys to decide, I've been working for Coppola doing this stuff, but I haven't been making movies. I'm still interested in going to film school. So... You know, I, I got in, and and I told all my friends. I said, um, "What do you think? Is this should I be going to film school? Is this a waste of my time?" And I I pulled a lot of people, and either they said, "You're crazy. You know, you know more than the professors at the school because you've been working on real movies. You're out of your mind," or uh, "Great, that's the only way you're going to make films." I called Coppola. I said, "What should I do?" And he said, mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to learn anything more than you know, but you're going to have friends who will be making movies, and you'll be making movies.
0: Right. Yeah, you'll have the... I mean, I still tell... Uh, my son has a friend who graduated from acting school at BU and was looking to get into Columbia uh, Film School there. And I just was like, do I... Can I do that? Because it's so easy to have access to equipment, way more than we did oh, yeah. at, at that it's time. Different um, world. Uh, but even then, he said "It's it's... You know, they put equipment in, in my hands. Not only do I get to make movies, I have to make movies if I right. want to get my grade. So there is something to walking into a structured situation. Now there, yeah. it, I, that's the cue to take a break. This, <laughs> if I actually had a sponsor, this is where I would take a break. We'll be right back to Michael Lehman. It's a fascinating story. And how is Heathers born? But at what point did you decide you just would go ahead and take that leap? Well, I, I thought
1: about it carefully. I talked to a bunch of people, and I had a friend who worked at Zoetrope with me, and he had taken his own money and made a short film, a 35-millimeter film. He's, he spent a ton. It was a 20-minute film. It was really good. He screened it, and it didn't really help him get very far as a director. And I thought, well, this is better than all the student films I've seen, but nobody's paying attention. And I realized that if you make a movie in film school, it can be viewed in a context that makes sense to people who are looking for young filmmakers. So there was something about coming out of school with a film that it seemed to me was a very good way to to start start a career as a director, and I decided that things weren't really going anywhere for me at Zoetrope anyway, because Francis was running out of money, and even though he was still making movies, I was working on Outsiders and Rumble Fish, and they were fun. I just didn't see a future for myself as a filmmaker coming out of there, and um, so I took the plunge. I said, I said, you know, shit, I'll just do this. I'll try it and see how how bad can it be.
0: That shows some conviction, because you could have easily said. And, and this is uh, uh, something that's come up many, many, many times with people I've talked to on this podcast in any creative capacity, that they start out as one thing and and a left turn happens. And if you embrace it and you take it, you can become successful at that. And you could have easily become something within the film industry, wherever you were headed in that capacity. You were already at a level where you were working with one of the most revered filmmakers Yet, I mean, even at that point, he was considered okay. He's a lock for you know being one of the greatest of all time. And in that that grouping, and you could have been a I don't know a producer. You mm-hmm. could have uh, yeah. you know worked in any other capacity, but you still needed to satisfy that need to create on your own. Yeah. Well, the the advice I
1: got from filmmakers I talked to was if you want to be a director, then make movies. They said just make movies, however you make movies. And at that time, which was nineteen eighty. One, I think, maybe 82. No, uh, 82. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't so easy to go out and make movies on your own. You could make them on Super 8, but they, they didn't have sync sound. They didn't right. look very good. The limitations were were pretty big. If you wanted to make a movie on 60 millimeter or 35, you had to spend a lot of money. The equipment was expensive. It was hard to come by. You needed a big crew. It's not like today where you can literally take your, your smartphone and make a movie, and right. you can edit it on your computer, and it looks really good it looks better than than those 16 millimeter movies we were making a lot better yeah so at that time uh one of the reasons to go to film school was just to get access to equipment and and to people that you could work with
0: yeah you are around people of like mind i mean i think for me the 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 biggest revelation was that I was finally around people who I could talk the talk with and yeah. and not be ridiculed. <laughs> you well, know? It, it, we could be really passionate about stuff that we we really love.
1: And you connect. I mean, look, here it is. I don't know how many, I don't want to say how many I, years I, I hate later doing it the is, math. but, you know, yeah. a few years later when yes. <laughs> we're still talking. Right. Uh, so, it, it is, it, it was a big part of film school. I, I'm very happy that I made the move and, and to many people I knew at the time, they just couldn't comprehend it. They just said to yeah. me, that is the stupidest thing you could possibly do and I said you're going to see and and it was true within a few years I was making a feature film and well
0: we, we, let's not get out of USC until we talk about your calling card that resulted from your final project yeah okay. which it has the greatest title of all time
1: right it has the greatest title of all time I don't know if there's anything else to commend about it but uh, is it out there by the way can people <laughs> find it I don't think so I it, it exists in at USC. It's okay. in their library. People, right. Every once in a while, I'll talk to a film student who'll say, I thanks.
0: looked at your student film and it really sucked, you know,
1: <laughs> <laughs> which is typical. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, of course. I go, oh, good, we'll go make a better one. Yeah. And, well, we're know. talking
0: about <laughs> Beaver Gets a Boner. Yeah. Uh-huh. The, the Beaver Gets the a Boner. The Beaver Gets a Boner, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I screwed up the greatest title uh, well, of all time. Um,
1: and it was written by a, uh, a writing student named Redbeard Simmons, who was very talented, and had basically, he had a class... This is trivial. I'll I'll try to gloss through this as quickly as I can. But he, he had a he had a screenwriting class where the assignment was to write a short script that could be made into a student film. And Redbeard said, I'm gonna make a parody, essentially a parody, of the classic USC student film, which is about a kid in a small town who wants to get out of get out of the small town and go do something else somewhere else. And so he wrote this really, really funny and really obnoxious and really abrasive script about a drug dealer who decides to be to <laughs> basically goes straight in order to raise money to pay back his heroin supplier <laughs> after after this kid's mother has flushed the supply of drugs down the toilet oh, that old yeah. story yeah,
0: you know the, the classic u s c story. Hey, i know that's concert. that's the thing that the faculty greenlit all the
1: time, yeah, so uh what happened was he wrote this it was a very funny script it was it was really good. And the faculty has to approve everything at USC. At least they did then. Mm-hmm. You, couldn't, you couldn't make a movie without their approval. And they looked at this thing and they said, well, we can't make a movie like this. And I, and I went to the faculty and said, actually, you have to make a movie like this because you have become so entrenched in your formulas that you run the risk of really just losing your credibility yeah. as a school.
0: Now, again, that took a little conviction. You had to go up against people. And this was something I heard all the time while I was there. And I know Phil Juano uh, also had Mm -hmm. his own kind of run in with, you know, the the strict length of the film that he had to show. I mean, the, the I don't know if this story is legend or not, but apparently he had to trim his short down to a certain length. And then once they approved it, he put all the pieces back in and screened it at the, at the length he wanted to his Joano cut yeah. uh, I don't know if that's true or not Some, something like that but it took that kind of conviction to to say you're just making us kind of poop out the same thing over and over again right. yeah. and
1: I, I you know I really like this script and I wanted to make the movie so I challenged the, the faculty and they said okay fine we will open this up and directors can pitch to be able to direct this particular script and then we will decide whether that's even going to be made at all so mm-hmm. they made it they 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 threw in a few more obstacles and there were actually a few of us directors who were trying to get permission and financing and support to direct that particular script and i assembled a group i a guy named larry karazuski who's gone on to become a very successful and Terrific screenwriter with Sky Alexander, his writing partner. They they were in, they were in school with us, and um, Larry helped me put together a crew of really really good, smart, enthusiastic young guys, and we um, and guys and girls, and we um, we we got it made. Mm-hmm. So we made this
0: outrageous little film that is pretty funny, actually. Well, okay, good. I'm you, you glad know. you give yourself a little credit because that was basically. Uh, for anybody at that time there's this one project that wraps basically wraps up your cinema school journey that you are expecting to take out i right. mean it's it's kind of the only thing you've got i mean it's it's your resume rests on this one kind of 20 minute thing which a lot of guys were able to turn into work right away yes it was it was a thing that you know lucas i guess made
1: THX mm-hmm. as his project, and um, then in recent years, closer to the time when we were in school, Jamie Foley did a student film that right. helped him. I and Bob Zemeckis did a great movie called The Lift, I think, he, and and also in the Field of Honor was his right. That was film. the one they screened all the time. Yeah, and you know these guys made really good movies and went on to become uh, to have success in Hollywood. Kevin Reynolds uh, made a movie called Proof. Right. So there there were movies that had been made in the recent in, in during that time that got people opportunities to direct features. And so we were looking at this saying, "Oh, uh, you can make a good film in in school and you can screen it at the at the school screening and agents and studio people will take a look and maybe it'll may, you know, who knows, maybe it'll help me make my movie, my big movie." And that's kind of what happened. Yeah. And I always feel like yes, the Beaver Gets a Boner is funny. It's it's irreverent. It's funny. It's it's stylish in a way that's unusual for a USC film. It's more like a John Waters film, and it is like a George Lucas film. And it stood out in the in the industry screening that was done through the school, and it got me a lot of attention, and definitely made it possible for me to go on and make Heather's.
0: Yeah, and and at that point, I mean, you're right. It hadn't exactly been that way until we got through that you know Lucas and Millias period where suddenly it was a feeding frenzy it was this is the new pipeline for the new hollywood and i think that they were agents and and producers and people were coming to these student screenings which before that had maybe had a smattering of students and mostly just other people in the film school yeah but they were looking for the next wave thinking this was where that was coming from
1: right it was starting to become institutionalized you yeah. know USC UCLA NYU when they when they screened their student uh, shorts, the people from the industry came and took a look and were looking to try to find the next you know, the next big filmmakers there. That I don't think that was the case five years before no, us. No, I don't think so. And it's still the case to some degree. Absolutely. You know, um
0: it, 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 if, if anything, it's actually a little bit more of a structured farm system kind of situation yeah. now where people are groomed a little bit more. Because the point I want to make here is that we were a little bit around the kind of frontier of that happening from the standpoint of these are 21 22 23 year olds many of them I mean did you I think back to me at that age I know I wasn't prepared to walk into the industry and have any responsibility put upon me I just wasn't built for that did you feel absolutely ready to walk out the door and go I can direct a major motion picture now
1: uh, kind. I mean, at you know, I you I had
0: spent three years working at zotra right? So, and
1: I was a little older because of that. Mm-hmm. I was I was twenty seven, twenty eight. You know, so right. I had a little more life experience and a little more self assurance from that. And I wasn't intimidated by the movie business per se because I'd been around it and I knew a lot of people who worked in it. But it, in, in terms of selling myself as a director, all I had was the short film right. and whatever brief experience I had working around movies. So, I knew how hard it was. I think more than most students coming out of film school, I knew how ridiculous it was to put myself forward and say, I can direct a film. Uh, you know, but it's fine. You need, as we talked about, right. you need that confidence, you need that arrogance, you need to believe. You have faith in yourself and your ideas. And, you, you know, you just go out and you tell people, sure, right. I can
0: do this. And I think it helps to be actually 20-something to be somewhat stupid about, about your limitations. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact is you <clears throat> did have immediately the situation that became this pop culture phenomenon. I mean, to this day, Heather's still gets referenced. I mean, I, I, since you and I started emailing... It, the article has long passed, but there was a New York Times article that basically had the definitive, you know, like female movies of the decade, I guess, because they were talking about, um, what, what was the one that most recent one that came out? But anyway, they they cited Heather's in the '80s, was it Mean Girls in the '90s? No, uh, 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 Clueless in the '90s. Yeah. Mean Girls in the 2000s, and I guess they were trying to determine, was, was it Easy A or, or one yeah. of the others maybe in, in recent history or whatever. But they basically said these were the definitive movies. And then Heathers has this life of the musical concept, I right. mean, <laughs> it, 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 which, I, as far as I can tell, hasn't really ever come to pass. Well, I don't know. Well, they, they – they... Actually, the musical played in New York. Okay, and, it
1: did. Yeah, it did, and it it had some success. It never really rocketed to the big success. I guess you're supposed to have in that world. I I don't know much about the world of musicals and what constitutes a you know. Uh, I don't know what people look for there, but anyway, they they did develop the musical. They put it on. It played in New York, and I've noticed that it plays in other places. I was I was in San Francisco visiting my mom, and I was walking down the street, and I saw a poster in. Uh, or a flyer in in the window of a shop saying "Heather's the musical," playing here. It had a run. And I I followed up and found out that in various cities around the country, people are staging the musical. Yeah. So, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you have zero connection to that, really. I, I'm a friendly. I'm a friendly party. I'm no. not involved as a producer. Right. I don't get any money from it. I don't get any credit on it or anything like that. But I, w- I was supportive of it. I thought it was a great thing for the people to do. It is a
0: really good idea. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for people who have such a great affection for that movie. And I I would have to imagine out of everything you've done, and you've done so much work, but its it's got to be the thing that keeps coming back to you. I mean, have you had... A relatively okay relationship with that movie. Did you go through a period where I want people to please stop bringing it up to me, and kind of came back around no, to affection? You've always I've felt,
1: that, always been fine about it. Yeah. You know, the fact is, it's so hard to make a good movie at all. And if if that movie, if people are still watching it now, twenty six years later, then I don't know if it constitutes a good movie. But at least it's a movie that had some kind of impact. You, you go, oh sure, great. Don't. You know, if if you like it, you can tell me. I'm happy. <laughs> I don't mind being associated. I love the film. I had a great experience making it. I don't think I've made a better movie. I, I don't think so. And
0: um, well, is it is it looks like it was one of those that was just kind of touched with magic. I mean, one of the great things about it is that it was very much of a time. I mean, I think you look at it now and you can't look at it the same way you watched it then. No, because it is a a true kind of admittedly um, exaggerated time capsule of the time because it was a satire and and had, you know, these kind of big moments. But, boy, you look at it now, and it really kind of does define the ickiest part of the 80s <laughs> from from everything from fashion to attitudes the, the funny thing is we
1: intended that then and the satirical point of view still holds yeah now it's like looking at a really funny old movie i i laugh when when kids tell me they've seen it kids meaning you know teenagers right i say wow that that's funny that you're looking at a really old movie because <laughs> it was not only made before you were born it was made many many years before you were born right and i try to think of a comparable thing in my life i go well i watched rebel without a cause which was probably made around the time i was born and it looked to me like a really old movie right. you know interesting good you know definitely worth watching but very much a period piece so i got to figure for people now it's it's uh, ancient history but probably interesting to see that ancient history.
0: It's something, actually, that they can relate to. This occurred to me once when my son was in high school and he was taking uh, high school acting classes and he got assigned to write a paper about an actor. He picked an actor and he ended up picking Dustin Hoffman. And he was supposed to watch, I think, two or three movies that were as different in genre as possible just to have a wide range and then write a paper about it. So we watched Tootsie. you got to watch Tootsie. Yeah. Uh, we watched Kramer versus Kramer. And it hit me at one point that, um, like, he's talking on the phone, and there's this long ass cord. If you remember, in his apartment, <laughs> he's walking around the apartment, and yeah. this just giant. It's one of those ex- extra long cords that you used to have, so you could kind of be mobile. And I remember thinking, and and a, dial, a rotary dial. I'm thinking, oh wow, that looks really weird. But the rest of the movie looks. I mean, it's in color. You yeah. know, <laughs> It's in widescreen. It's beautifully shot. It's a contemporary story. It's it's a relationship story. There's nothing overtly quote old about it until they get to the scene where uh the son is saying you know did you watch the brady bunch when you were little and hoffman's character says oh we didn't have uh, the brady bunch when i was little we didn't have tv right we listened to the radio and i was floored by that comment i had to start doing the math it's like oh yeah dustin hoffman at the age he was at in the 80s would have grown up listening to radio. And again, I'm looking at a very seemingly, in my mind, contemporary film. And I remember my son kind of looking at me sideways going, listen to the radio? What? (laughs) How old is this movie? Um, Because I've always maintained we haven't exactly made, other than technologically, we haven't made a ton of advancement forward in storytelling in movies, I think, uh, from the standpoint of we're, we and I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's like if you think about how old Clockwork Orange is or 2001, I'm thinking Kubrick who was very much a visionary. Yeah. I don't know that you can say we've done better than that at that time and that's those are quote old movies. I mean yeah. they look amazing. They have an incredibly dark side to them that hadn't been happening well before that. Um anyway, I'm rambling well, on. Well, but
1: in film school, um, we were obligated to take a film history class that included a big section of silent films. Right. And uh, David Shepard, who taught the class, showed movies that were made in the in the silent era, m- international movies, I don't think many of them were American, that were stylistically as out there and interesting as anything that had been made in the 60s or 70s or is being made now. And the camera moved and, and weird angles were used and... Uh, abstract storytelling was going on so people figured it out early on and that went away with, with sound because they had the equipment was so bulky and right. huge they couldn't do that
0: anymore and also performances I guess I, I, you've actually struck a memory with me too but the uh, the documentary series on European cinema yeah. um, was a revelation to me from that standpoint too because there are some silent films I want to say uh, definitely European where the performances are very grounded very naturalistic Nothing like the kind of big expansive movements that we saw in most of the silent films of that era. So, yeah. All right. So you've shot down my theory. No, no. (laughs) No. Actually, what I'm saying, I'm I'm agreeing with you. Oh, okay. That that, that it hasn't
1: changed, that the storytelling techniques have been around for a long time. And in, in actual fact, in the in the 60s and 70s. That there was a lot more adventurous kind of filmmaking being made. But nowadays, you know, if you look at modern filmmaking, um, things move very quickly on the screen. There's a, people's ability to process visual information is different now than it was when we were younger. And it's hard for us to admit that because we kind of feel like we were very sophisticated and I, and I suppose we were. but
0: <laughs>
1: you know i I remember as as a director once I was working with a producer. And this was – I think this was on a Hudson Hawk movie I made. It was a producer who said, you know, you're, you're shooting in a way where you're going to be cutting from a moving shot to a static shot and you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, yeah, w- watch this. <laughs> you can do that. But I realized – that he grew up at a time when that was considered a, a breaking a rule right 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 and you yeah. had
0: to transition into that you couldn't just kind of jolt into yeah. that yeah
1: and and now screen direction is almost non-existent people if if one person talks and another person talks then they're talking to each other mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if they're looking in the right direction or if the camera's on the right side of the line yeah that whole axis
0: thing doesn't yeah. matter especially because as as mobile as cameras have become too that you just you are able to move around you can set up lighting in a way where you don't have to worry about light stands and things. Apparently, I mean, yeah. You can just move and move and move and move. Yeah. Um, it's uh, That reminds me of something else, and I've totally, it's kind of gone out of my head now. Oh, um, going back to the kind of 70s era, I've been trying to kind of get my kid caught up on some of the things that he might have missed. We watched The French Connection recently, yeah. which has this reputation for being this kind of, frenetic, you know, the car chase thing is the thing that everybody talks about. But the first 20 minutes of that movie is this, is, is literally like this documentary camera was just set up and following these characters yeah. around. Nothing happens. And one thing that I think, and I see this happening a lot, especially in that era, the first 20, 30, 40 minutes of a movie, there's not much going on. That set piece at the beginning that we're so used to now mm-hmm. that apparently is standard de rigueur uh, that we have to have yeah. to set us off, that didn't exist. They no. developed the character in the first forty minutes, and in, in, but you know Popeye Doyle intimately by the first twenty-five minutes because he's he just the dialogue with Roy Scheider. He's incredibly racist. <laughs> that was a little yeah. shocking. Yeah. Um, he he. You get his style of policing. It's very slow. It's very methodical. We're just observing for twenty minutes. There is no action in right. that at all. You wouldn't see that in a modern movie, and it. And it pays off because when things do start, when shit does start going down, it feels like you've been part of that process. You're very embedded with these people.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there's this fear now that people will change the channel when (laughs) they watch. And there's there's a fear that if you don't grab people in the first 20 minutes of a theatrical film, you're never going to get them and then they'll hate the movie. So – and and I did, you know, I worked for Joel Silver years ago, and he he had he was famous for having a whammo chart, you know, that certain oh no, yeah, that big big events had to happen at certain points in the movie just to sort of move it along right. and, and create the, the tension and the interest, and so that it was that kind of filmmaking that developed this need for big action right up front. To to get people you know, kind of hooked in,
0: you must experience that in episodic as well now because there is, I think, this need. I, at least I've noticed it. I've been binge watching The Walking Dead. I finally got around to it, and it is, um, I don't, I, I'm not going to say there's a formula there, but they definitely know when to <clears> grab <throat> you by the throat, and when to leave you, dangling there. Yes. Um, in a very effective way, I mean, I think they do it really, really well. You must be experiencing that in the storytelling you're doing with the TV you're directing too. yeah, you know people have figured out
1: all sorts of great tricks to extend serial storytelling yeah. and and keep you engaged and 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 now it's that's become so. Part of the process that people are fighting against it and choosing not to use those tricks, right, in order to keep you engaged because it's not what you expect. <laughs> I mean, it, it's so. <laughs> the, the good news is there's so much interesting stuff being done in whatever whatever we now call television, you right? Know, which is a lot of different stuff. Yeah, um, I, I can put a plug in for my son has created a show that is streaming on Hulu, and it's um, it's a comedy and it's a it's a family comedy. It's called Casual, and it's just it's just uh, debuted last night. Oh, wow. And uh, and it's really, really, really good. And uh, I've been reading the reviews, and I've been looking at it. I don't read my own reviews, but I'm very happy to read my son's of reviews. Of course, of course. And they're all good, so I'm even happier. And posting them on Facebook, uh, I yes, notice. Yes, whatever I can do. <laughs> You're but, such a dad. <laughs> uh, of course. Oh, my God. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about it is that the storytelling isn't following some of those conventions, and that his characters are allowed to breathe and relax much in the same way we had in the 70s. Right. And people are coming around to this saying, well, we don't necessarily have to follow the conventions of of dramatic storytelling the same way we did before because that's become boring.
0: I think that's true. And I think actually, again, I'll keep referring to The Walking Dead because it's top of mind for me because I've... Binge watched up to the new season, which starts this weekend. Yeah. My son is catching up to me, so I've been kind of over his shoulder watching some of the episodes. He watched one last night that focused just on two characters the entire episode. Very quiet moments, lots of conversation, the occasional zombie killing, uh, but mostly discussion and quiet moments. And it's and it's so it w- that was jarring to me because. Yeah. That show has those moments, but this was a, almost a full episode of its forty-six minutes or whatever it was. It seemed like forty minutes of it was quiet conversation or brooding or you know looks or things, and that's that's heartening to me. I think that 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 if, it's interesting that that's adventurous storytelling right now, uh, but I like it. Yeah. Well, it's also true that if you if you have a, a show that runs for six or seven seasons, yeah. then you're allowed to
1: do that because you, right. your audience has grown so intimately connected with the characters that they're very happy to sit and watch a, a lower-key episode that, that deals with those personal things. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of that's one of the many big pluses of this current wave of television.
0: I feel like I could keep you here forever, Michael, but I don't want to do that, so I'm going to jump around in your career a little bit. We we started out chronological, which is better for me because I'm a simple, simple person, as far as narrative goes. But... Uh, Let's jump back to Heather's for a second, because, again, a a huge highlight, something that kicked off a career that has been quite successful, but maybe not the way you expected it. And here's a prime example of someone who kind of had to maybe divert their path a little bit because of your adventure in Hollywood. Heather was by those standards a success right it, it a, a cult success a re- yeah, was it, it a, was it a, i mean it made it its money was not a fi- it wasn't a financial it was success not. no um, but it got but great I, why rev- do i remember everybody talking about it and it was a top of mind
1: it, it, it was discussed a lot yeah. it was it was well reviewed at it, the time at the time right. yeah it was it it got into the culture right away and it was it was a success there's no doubt about it but new world pictures who made the movie went out of business basically as that's the movie was being right. released that's right so a it wasn't really doing significant box office it was in it was it was out in the major cities and it was doing it was filling theaters in the major cities
0: but it didn't get the massive distribution no, it, that it, it needed right
1: and it was a very inexpensive movie so i'm sure new world made money on it mm-hmm. but of course they said they didn't and they were they were so much going out of business that in the second weekend of the movie's run there was no ad in the New York Times, even though this movie had great reviews. Wow. And I went to the head of distribution at New World. I said, I said, dude, there's no ad in the New York Times. And he said, oh, that's ridiculous. And I said, show me the ad in the New York Times. <laughs> and he opened He's the newspaper in <laughs> his office and said, oh, oh you're right. There's no ad. And now, of course, he was was lying. He knew there was no ad. Uh I mean, of course. But he acted like, oh, how could that happen? It happened because— We lost your application. Right, exactly. But (laughs) they they had run out of money. They could not afford or chose not to spend for an ad in The New York Times because probably at that point they didn't care anymore. It was very small on their list of priorities at the company. Yeah. So they did put an ad in The New York Times the next week. Um, I think they were just embarrassed. You know, they had a movie that was arguably the only hit that they'd had in that particular version of New World Pictures because right. it, it used to be Corman's company. It no longer was at that point. And um, – but th- anyway, the mo- long story short, the movie didn't make any money. It did do very well on video when it came out and uh, I don't know who got that money. <laughs> because <laughs> I don't think New World existed, <laughs> and I'm not sure who released it at that point. And I made the movie non-guild, so I never I never saw a residual on the film. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is uh, – although it was – the I think I got paid $50,000 to direct the movie. And, oh, I was really ha- – $50,000 was a That's ton huge. of money to me. I mean it was out of this world. And that's all I ever made on the film, right. and it's the best $50,000 I ever made because, you know, <laughs> I basically built a career on that. But.
0: Now, you didn't write the script for that. No. But, but do you feel like Michael Lehman's sensibility, your touches in that movie, and, and how? What, what was it? First of all, you must have responded to the script. You yeah. must have definitely felt like you can connect to this in some way. Um, and then what did you bring to it that maybe we don't recognize or realize?
1: Well, I, the, first of all, I have to commend Dan, Daniel Waters, who wrote the script. He wrote a brilliant script, an yeah. amazing script, and I'm sure any number of filmmakers could have made a great film out of that great script. So, um, you know, he should get primary creative accolades for having conceived this movie. and And I kept him very close to me during the making of the film because Dan is a great guy, and he's he's really really talented. and And we had a you know we had a great working relationship. So, uh, on the other hand. The, it was really the beaver gets a boner that that convinced the head of new world that i could make the heathers so somewhere in there there was some sensibility that was already present in in my work as a director also on a on a script i hadn't written cuz you know redbeard wrote that script right so i i think it was more than anything a kind of an understanding of the tone that was right for that for that humor it, it, translating from the page to the screen is very Difficult, And it requires a lot of judgment about what constitutes the right tone of performance. So even though I look back at it now and I say, well, actually, I'm a much better director now than I was then. and I would do certain things differently. At least I, I had a take on it that I think helped in the casting of the parts, in the nature of the performances and in the choice of angles and the style of the film that all enhanced, I hope, or helped bring to life what Dan had written.
0: And it definitely had enough impact that, like, as we've talked about, it still has a life outside of that right. period. It right. still kind of comes up. Do you get pressured to, you know, do reunions and get the cast, you know? The, I, I don't think I've ever seen the cast get back together again unless no. they did, uh, uh, and I missed it. But uh
1: No, Winona used to always want us to make a sequel.
0: Yeah, she's talked about yeah, that. she talks about she that. She still talks about that, I
1: think. She does. And... Um, And, you know, she was was absolutely terrific and great to work with. I'd be happy to do anything with her. But I didn't really think that Heather's lent itself to a sequel, and I'm not sure Dan ever did either. So, you know, could we do a movie inspired by it that had some of the same characters? Yeah. But Dan would have to write that, and uh, he's got other things he's working on. (laughs) Um, I did just this last week direct an episode of a television show called Scream Queens, which Ryan Murphy, who created the show, describes as Heather's meets Halloween. Mm-hmm. And it's very Heather's-ish. And I was very reluctant to do it because of because that. Of it. I I thought long and hard about, do I even want to go back into that territory? Because I hadn't really been back in that territory for many years. And and I decided that that since Ryan did a pretty good job of …of doing the Heathers kind of thing and since it's so many years later and the style of Heathers has evolved in so many ways and so many other movies that it was actually more fun to go back and that nobody would – it wouldn't even register anyway with anybody but me. So I went and did, did the show and it was fun to work with young actresses talking in a sort of you know semi heather's style and
0: uh, and it was funny when when uh, talk about some of the things that haven't changed that much yeah, it's that's it's right. actually kind of remarkable how the language hasn't exactly uh, in that in that gender and in that age range it's still really, really close. It is. It is, and the attitude is the same. yes, so, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and it some was things are timeless.
1: Very funny to talk to to the the creators of the show because they're giving me a tone meeting where they're trying to tell me how to how to do this. And they said, uh, "I guess we don't really have to tell you how to hit this kind of tone." And I said, "Well, you know, you can tell me whatever you want. Yeah, right. I'm going to do it the way I do it."
0: So um, Heather's afforded you the chance to immediately. Basically, going to your next movie, which was Meet the Applegates, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Had varying degrees of reaction to it. But (laughs) there are, I mean, there are people who have a great affection for that film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And it's another, it's a weird movie, man. It's a weird movie. Yeah. I love that film. And that was Red Beard Simmons, who
1: wrote The Beaver Gets a Boner, wrote that with me. And we didn't have much money to make it with. and. It was a very weird film. It's about giant insects posing as a normal American family right. in order to detonate a nuclear power plant and make the world safe again for insects. Awesome. Yeah. So, it, you know, Redbeard and I were both very proud of having come up with that idea. And uh, the movie is, you know, only partially successful, but there are parts of it that I, that I think are really funny and I'm very proud of it. Yeah. And, and the themes of it are very
0: current today. So nobody can see the film. It's not out anywhere. That's the thing. I tried to, to – I was doing my research over the last several months of us corresponding. <laughs> and so I figured I might be able to get through the entire Michael Lehman canon before we actually talk. And that, I was frustrated by that because yeah. I wanted to see it again and refresh myself. Because I remember there being some really fun, great moments in that. It doesn't exist on DVD. Wow.
1: And you can buy a VHS copy on eBay you know, but then you need a VHS player.
0: I, I wouldn't even know how to begin to... The...
1: I talked to some French uh, cinephiles who were who were uh, doing a thing and interviewing me, and the one of these guys said, well, the one movie I haven't been able to see is Meet the Applegates. And, and I said, oh, shit. I said, well, uh, I, I, I owned a print, but I gave it to the Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley, and they have it, and... Um, I have a laser disc of it. <laughs> and I said, I got a laser disc, maybe we can figure out how to digitize the movie off the laser disc. And he said, "Oh yeah, if you do that, please tell me and yeah. and 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 send me a copy." And I went and I found my laser disc copy and I thought, "Well, but I don't even know how to I there's, I don't know how to
0: turn that into a digital gotta copy. A There's got to be a way. There's got to be a way. I'm sure here in town there's some place. Um, it, it's interesting because you told me I will never forget this, and I've quoted this to so many other people. The last time you and I did have the chance to be face-to-face, and we had that lunch, um, The Truth About Cats and Dogs was about to come out, I believe, at Mm -hmm. the time. Um, Which I have such an affection for that movie. I really like that movie. And you said something at lunch about just kind of the path you had already gone up to that point. And you said something like... um, Hollywood, I've ne- and I've never heard anybody put it this way before, really, or even say this. You said, Hollywood is very forgiving. I made Hudson Hawk, for crying out loud, and I'm getting to make a movie. Yeah. I mean, you seem to be under the impression that once you're in, you still have the opportunity to succeed. I mean, maybe it's more difficult now, and obviously your career has taken a different path. Yeah. I mean, did did Hudson Hawk feel like at the time... Because people don't really talk about it as much now as as they used to. It was a punchline for a very long time. Yeah. Um, did you feel like you were done? Was there a period where you thought I'm just not going to work again? Not cr- from that. No, I, I I felt you know it was it was it it was a crushing blow
1: to my career at that point because I was a super hot director before I made that film, yeah. and the movie was so unsuccessful and so subject to so much ridicule and derision that i i kind of had to lift myself out of the dung heap of history and and, and you also
0: to, didn't have a very good time making it either did no you? it was a very it difficult was, process yeah. for me yeah so it was a compounded i mean it was a double whammy basically is that oh god i have to do this thing and yeah. grunt through it and then deal with the aftermath it didn't it didn't knock me out of the running
1: as a as a director in hollywood it was interesting during the shooting mike metavoy who ran tristar who actually took over TriStar while I was making the movie, so he didn't have any part in greenlighting it, came to visit the set in Rome, and he said to me, he said, um, it was in the middle of a shoot, I'll never forget this, and Mike's a a great guy, but he was not happy with how the movie was going creatively or financially, and it it was a tough process. And he, he said to me, he said, look, you know, you got you a big problem on your hands here. And I said, thank you, Mike. I, I didn't realize that. And and he said, let me tell you something. He said, Joel Silver will work again. Bruce Willis will work again. And then there was like a long dot, <laughs> dot, dot. And I said, I said, are you fucking kidding me you're actually telling me you'll never work in this town again I said I thought that was just legend that people said that sort of thing I said you're the head of a studio don't tell me this in the middle of a shoot day I said this wow this is really not it's making my chest tight just hearing the story and and he's and he basically said I'm just saying you know (sighs) And I had dinner with him that night or the next night. And I said, how could you do that to me? I'm like a young filmmaker. I'm trying to make – I'm doing everything I can to make this movie as good as it can be. And you're, you're literally hitting me with, you know, you'll never work in this town again. He said, I was just trying to scare you. <laughs> 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 to get you back on yeah. track. Well, he did scare me. And, yeah. and, but, the, you know, to his credit, he, he actually was the first – Studio had to offer me a movie after that, wow, so uh you know so that 's fine, but it was it was a really tough experience, and the movie was very, very, very badly received so and i didn 't think it was that you know I thought the movie was a mess whatever it's it 's got to be it's considered a mess but
0: but there was all sorts of interesting stuff
1: in it, yeah, if you yeah.
0: go back to it, which again I did and it's you I get at the time why people were jumping on it because it was. It was, yeah, it was kind of all over the place, but it was, it was, again, doing, there were some things in it that were so irreverent and so quirky and are really fun to watch now. And again, it's a little bit of a time capsule, but it was obviously uh, somewhere along the way, it just kind of lost its yeah. way i guess and and
1: we were deliberately trying to subvert the genre sure i mean very deliberately and the interesting thing was this was something that dan waters who you know had written heathers and i got involved in this we took on a very 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 conventional action adventure movie and turned it into this monstrosity that <laughs> attempted to subvert itself at every turn. And what we did was we subverted ourselves at ah. every turn because the critics and audiences weren't interested in that. Yeah. And and most people either looked at it as being incompetent, which it wasn't, no. or uh, just misguided, which maybe it was. Mm-hmm. And you know, it has a cult following now. I, still, yeah, I get a absolutely. lot of people who, who – and I say, yeah, you know, you like it because it's so bad that
0: it's good or whatever. But um, it, Is it unfair that it got the label somewhat from, from some areas that it was Bruce Willis running wild with his power and pushing it in the direction that made it something, you know, off the rails or – no, that's not unfair. I mean, we
1: our first day of shooting was the Monday or uh, the Monday after the Fourth of July opening of Die Hard Two. So Bruce showed up to set, pumped up, <laughs> basically. You know, this guy had had a huge, huge opening on the sequel to a yeah. movie that had had a huge, huge, you know, opening and yeah. a big performance. He, and he
0: was arguably the biggest star in the world at that, at that moment. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, at least the biggest star in the United States. Funny thing is, when I was casting the movie. And trying to recast one of the parts, that, that uh, female part that, that had to be recast in the middle of the movie, I talked to a lot of European actresses who I was trying to get in the film. None of them knew who Bruce Willis was. <laughs> they thought he was sort of a bus and truck Mickey Rourke, <laughs> which, I, you know, amused me to no end. But, you which
0: know. is not actually far off. No, at the time. Yeah. Um,
1: anyway, uh, yeah, Bruce, Bruce had a big ego and he was riding high on his success, as was Joel Silver. I had you know, two 20,000-pound gorillas on each of my shoulders every day of shooting that movie, it was tough. Yeah. But, you know, they also did deflect some of the criticism from me, and it was perceived as their failure, interestingly, more more than mine. I mean, I think my failure, if anybody was paying attention to me, they would have said, well, my my mistake was taking the movie in the <laughs> first place. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Right, right. So I think that allowed me to keep working, but it – It definitely put a damper on on my ability to get interesting movies made in Hollywood. And my next film was um, going to be a a movie called The Good Son that was made with Macaulay Culkin. And I put the film together. It was Ian McEwen, who's a great British writer, wrote the script. It was an original script. We were going to make it on a low budget for Fox – And I was casting the film and basically Macaulay Culkin's father shut me down because I didn't want to cast Macaulay in the role. Not that I didn't think he was a terrific young actor. I did. I just didn't think he was right for that role. Mm -hmm. And uh, the father basically told Fox, if you don't put him in The Good Son, I'm going to pull him out of uh, Home Alone 2. (laughs) And Fox turned to me and said, we can't lose Macaulay Culkin to Home Alone 2. That's a huge franchise for us. So my movie was shut down, and I moved on, and it was made a, a year later with yeah. a different director. Right, and um, so I had
0: all these bizarre Hollywood experiences. Yeah, you, know. you and and then you had a series. Of, you did get to make more movies. Yeah, um, but at some point, television became an option. And it, it, was it something you were ever thinking about doing? I mean, was it no? No, uh, you know, in the nineties, I. I
1: had been offered the pilot to the Larry Sanders Show, and I remember saying, uh, "I read the script, thought it was really, really funny." And I said, "I don't know how to direct television. Right. I don't. I don't even know, you know. I don't know what I would do here, but I think this is great." And I saw the show in its first season, and they offered me episodes, and I said, "I'll, I'll happily do that because oh, wow. I." pretty sure I can figure out how to do that. Yeah.
0: Because they gave you the template at that point. Right. It's Like, oh, OK. So yeah.
1: I went in and did um, some Larry Sanders shows and really enjoyed it. And that's where I got the relationship with Janine Garofalo, who was in Truth About Cats and Dogs. And and it also, you know, allowed me to work with all sorts of terrific comedy writers and actors whom I still work with. So th- I, I was had a little basis in that. I did one of the very first episodes of Homicide, which was the first bit of dramatic television I'd done. But television to me was just something to do in between movies to keep sharp because it took so long to put a movie together. And I I always felt it was weird. You're a movie director, but you don't spend a whole lot of time on the set because there's so much time spent putting them together and editing them. Right, right. And and in television, you get to shoot. You you actually get to be on the set and work with the actors. So I liked it, but I never considered it a, a serious career thing. What happened was it was years later. I'd done a bit of television and I'd made some pilots along the way, but um, in the early two thousands, uh, I had my my wife at the time had moved us to Northern California, and I felt very distanced from Hollywood. And I had uh, a hard time. I was still making movies and I was still getting them made, but I started going down to L.A. just to direct here and there, mostly pilots. And I liked that, so I kind of got my foot in the world of television, but still didn't take it that seriously <laughs> um, until um, I came back around to HBO on a show called The Comeback, which was, oh God, when was that, 2005, 2006, somewhere in there? Right. Some Something like that. And and I was still, I, I made a movie called Because I Said So with Diane Keaton, which I had tons of fun making, but it was moving me away from the kind of filmmaking that I'd been involved in in the beginning, and I wasn't happy about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I found that my choices in, in Hollywood were getting less interesting in the feature film area, but suddenly television was exploding, particularly cable television.
0: Yeah, and you've got, you've got cable and basic cable all starting to develop yeah. their own voices and their own original programming, and... Pushing some envelopes in a lot of cases, right? Too. That, so, and that spoke to you.
1: That spoke to me. I did the comeback
0: and I said, "Wow, this is so much more fun." This is Lisa Kudrow's <clears throat> Lisa Kudrow thing, yeah. That's had a, a comeback again. Yeah, yeah it's, it's had a come comeback. Comeback. Um,
1: but I, I did. I think I did four episodes in its first season, and I did it because I I'd, I'd made a very very low budget film with Zoe Deschanel called Flakes, which was made for no budget in New Orleans, and I had a great time. Movie turned out okay, but. I made no money and it, and it took months and the HBO job came up and I said, let me just do this. And, um, and I had so much fun doing it that I decided that maybe I should be more open to that particular world of cable television, which was, you know, the uh, Sopranos was happening, that right. sort of thing. There was good work going on. And then I did some Big
0: Loves, which I really enjoyed and that
1: just got me going in that world. Yeah,
0: and you haven't stopped. I mean, yeah. I I was scanning your IMDb just before we got here because even just looking at what's listed as 2015 is ridiculous. I mean, you're you're I'm surprised that you're actually here and you're not falling asleep uh, right now because you had Blunt Talk is one of the most recent ones you were yeah. you were working yeah. on. You just came back from New Orleans working on Scream Queen. Queens. Scream Queens. Um, oh, man, I've already lost track. Well, uh, I was in I was in Budapest doing um,
1: a filling in on the f- season finale of Tyrant, which was a show, an FX show that I'd done the year before. Right. Um, the director had threw her back out and I had to go in and direct for a few <laughs> days just to, to, to help get the show done. Um, and
0: so, yeah, I've stayed really busy. Yeah, I'm... I, um, I, would, I don't want to embarrass you by just sitting here and listing them off, but uh, maybe I'm going to go ahead and do that.
1: No, don't do that.
0: Uh, no. no? I mean, you've done a couple of episodes of a lot of things. You've done several epi- episodes of, of many things. You did a couple of Dexters. You did yeah. a lot of True Blood. You've done some American Horror Story. The Matthew Perry series go on, which yeah. I actually liked, and I actually auditioned for like nine times and never oh. got a
1: part. That's oh. all right. Cali- yeah, you would have been good at that. Uh,
0: I I would have. Uh, Californication, you did several episodes. Yeah. Uh, the Brink, you mentioned earlier about uh, HBO, Blunt Talk, House of Lies, you did one episode. Yeah. Um And I mean, it's it's strange to me to see these one or two episodes because that's that's got to be challenging. To come into a pre-established situation and, oh, I'm going to do one quick episode of Nurse Jackie and then right. bye-bye. Yeah. You have to get up to speed on some of these things so quickly, especially as much as you're moving around.
1: Yeah, that that was a transition that, that was tough to make in terms of going into television. First of all, because the director's role is a little bit more limited than it is in a feature film. Right. You know, for sure, I knew that. I knew that because I'd been doing television along the way. And, and I used to think, well, this is ridiculous. I don't get to... Exercise my full set of skills when I direct television, and then I learned, okay, fine. I'm not going to direct my. I'm not going to exercise my full set of skills. However, I'm doing the core part of what I like to do, which is being on the set, right. you know, running, working with actors, and figuring out how to tell the story visually, all that sort of stuff. So um, the tricky part is when you when you go into a situation where things are already set up where most of the locations have been chosen, most of the cast has been cast, they've already done their their character many times, and you're looking in here trying to figure out what, what can I bring as a director right. besides just getting the job done. And I'm not interested in get, going on a show and just getting the job done, even when that's all they want
0: me to do. <laughs> <laughs> because I've, I'm sure there are those directors, there are those that get hired because he's, He's he's just going to follow the template. We don't have to worry. He's going to keep it on the tracks. Um, you strike me as somebody who's going to come in and say, yes, I understand who these people are. I understand that you want to stay consistent, but I also want to give it some of my sensibility. Yeah. you. you that's, I, a weird, well, that's a re- really strange balance to try and strike.
1: Right. One way to look at it is you say, well, I'm a guest at your dinner party, and I'm bringing a couple bottles of wine and a dessert.
0: And a good story. Yes. And,
1: and I'll be a really good guest, you know. <laughs> so you, you come in and you you don't you don't pretend as if you created the thing. Mm-hmm. You come in and you say, good, I or love— Or fixing the thing. Right. You're not coming in to fix it. Mostly I've tried to do shows in their first years because even if you're not doing the pilot, it actually I've ended up doing a lot of episode fours, you know, uh-huh. which is the time when the show has—they have a pilot. They've done their pilot. They've been picked up. They start to do the work. Episodes one and two are a lot about figuring out, oh, my God, we can't shoot it on location anymore. We have a set now for what was on location. <laughs> right, and on pilot. Right. Well, how are we going to do this? We've recast all these sorts of things. You just figure stuff out. Episode three is usually a disaster. Where, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. This is, this is a pattern. Oh, you know, wow. Three, it's like, oh, fuck, we spent all our money on one and two, and they didn't turn out that good. <laughs> and now three, all the problems are happening. So you come in episode four and you say, look, guys, here's how you make it get it back on
0: track oh look at you you're the fixer
1: right and i don't have any i actually have usually have no control over whether i get episode four or three or whatever but i've fallen into that slot and then i feel like oh i can actually be useful to you guys i can help you figure out now that the actors have gotten a foothold
0: yeah they're starting to gel with their characters maybe yeah and each other
1: exactly let me help you support the way to really make that work Mm -hmm. you know and it's not just do what you did before it's Figure out where can you stretch? Can you can you go in this direction stylistically? Can you can you do this? Can you let go of what you thought was so important but really isn't working? You know, so then I can work with the people who are making the show and try to bring in something that then leaves a little bit of an impression behind when I'm gone. So I, I've been in that situation, but you know, on the other hand, there's something like Dexter. I didn't do a Dexter until very late in the in the run, and. I'd seen a lot of the shows. I hadn't seen everyone, but I'd seen a lot of it. and I really loved the show, and and uh, you know, Michael's an incredible actor. At that point, I'm coming in and saying, "How do I just make one of the? Can I make a really, really good episode of your right, show? Right, right. You know, how do I just do it right? And and I'm not so much interested in showing them how they can,
0: you know, stretch or do it
1: differently. That's <laughs> right. the, they're not looking for that. At right, that point, right. You know,
0: wow. Is there part of you that? still holds out for the chance to make that great movie again is there are there projects like that floating around or do you even want to get dip your foot back into that if if it came up
1: you, you, the answer to that kind of has to be yes yeah. of course you know and and I miss making movies but I've had such a great time doing television I'm not in a hurry to jump back into the movie world you know the movie world has changed a
0: lot it's not a great time to, i mean you actually Uh, Your timing couldn't have been better in terms of catching things at the forefront and then being a go-to, somebody who's done so many different styles. You've done comedy and drama. You've done a wide range of even series within those genres um, and and have handled all of them. Uh, So you must be a go-to guy for almost anybody who says, God, he can do anything. I, I
1: get offered a lot of stuff that's, yeah. you know, that's diverse and, and I know I can come in and do it. I still think of myself as primarily a dark comedy guy and mm-hmm. that's what I like to do. That's why I had so much fun doing the brink and that's why um you know, even even Scream Queens, which is the the only network show I've done in a couple of years, it still was in my in the realm right. of what I enjoy doing. So uh I, I probably can at this point go in and direct all sorts of different styles and genres competently or even really well if I put my mind to it. But there's stuff that I love to do and that's what I'm really looking to do. And interestingly, there's more of that happening in television than there is in in, uh, big screen cinema. So I'm kind of going, well, what would it take for me to go back to doing a movie? I'd probably have to take time off and write it or or work with a writer whom I know and trust and come up with something good. And uh, I keep threatening to do that. But the world of Quality television keeps sucking me back in. <laughs> so, you know, next you, year... You
0: know, you don't have to say yes to everything?
1: No, and I don't. I, right. I actually don't say yes to very many things. And and at this point, I am getting to the point where I do more multiple episodes of shows than just come in and do one. Um, so, you know, I did four blunt talks, and I really like that. And that's Jonathan Ames, who did uh, Bored to Death, and I did right. a whole bunch of Bored to Deaths. Um, and I may or may not go back to Blunt Talk in the second year because I might not be available. But uh, The Brink, I did four of four of the ten episodes. I'll go back as producer on the second season and end up doing four or five of the episodes. So when you're involved in a show as a producer and a director and you can direct nearly half the episodes, that's a pretty good place to be. Yeah.
0: Creatively, Yeah, you know. because you do, you do actually feel like you get to have impact on something really beyond do. just that moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're not just sort of the custodian of the yeah. style of the show. You're actually creating, you know, you're creating what it is as it goes along. That's a good place to be. So, you know, I've also thought about rather than going back to movies, I should try to create a show. I did... He did have a show on Amazon called Betas that was, right. you know, I was I didn't create it. The, the writers, uh, Josh Stoddard and Evan Endicott created it, but we were, Michael London and I as producers were involved from very early on. And and so, you know, that's also these days in many ways the place to be is as executive producer and, you know, co-creator or creator of a television show.
0: Well, let me know when you're ready to do that K-Poo series because yeah. <laughs> – it's the pilots already written i think there you go Uh, you you can play fuzzy (laughs) i'm in (laughs) well michael i again i i uh i could talk to you all day and for a while there you probably thought we were going to but uh, i am going to release you if i post this today is there anything new that you'll need to plug before it goes up (laughs) (laughs) is there anything you're just doing so much man
1: no, I'm. Right. You know, I'm. By the way, I, the one thing I like to plug is the Brink, which which you know ran one season. And it, 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 the reviews were mixed, and but it did get people. People watched it. I think it's a really good show, and I think it's going to continue to become uh, a great spot for political satire. Awesome.
0: I'm going to dig into my HBO Go then because I I I haven't carved out the time for it, but man, the, just the cast alone looks like it's worth. Spending some time with, and, uh, and now that I know you're involved, well, of course. Yeah.
1: Well, and also our classmate, Jay Roach, directed the
0: pilot. Oh, wow. Yeah. There we go. Wow, the USC Mafia, man. Yeah, it's, I, uh, it's this, I might as well rename this podcast because that's basically all it's been lately. But uh, this, yeah. I like it. Wait, wait, is there anything else? Anything else? If, if, other than the USC Mafia. Uh, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah no, I'm okay. Martha Davis of the motels last yeah. week, and ah. uh, the occasional musician, and uh, a few comedians here and there.
1: How's Martha Davis doing? She's doing great. That's fantastic.
0: I will uh, I could tell you the whole story, or you could listen to the previous podcast. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to listen. Yeah. <laughs> it's, really, it's really good. It's actually a great story unto itself. Michael, a real pleasure. Um I just enjoy having a conversation with you. It just so happens to be one that's being recorded and sent out to the world. But uh, so great to catch up with you. And uh, I will continue to watch your journey uh, as it unfolds here. And we'll have you back the next time there's something really, really cool to talk about. That Heather's reunion that somebody's going to force you to Right.
1: Well, it's great to see you.
0: Get a monkey. Get a monkey!